about these um, short stories. Mm. So I recommended you listen to, uh, I think it's the, is it the New Yorker? Uh-huh. It's a New Yorker podcast where they just read a short story and then talk about it afterwards. Yeah, it's the New Yorker fiction. Yeah. And I think it was just one of those, like, I've got nothing to listen to. Let me go through the charts app mm-hmm. on whatever app I use. The charts, charts. The charts on whatever app I use. <laughs> and uh, I saw that one. And the most recent one was a John Cheever story. And I'd read John Cheever before based on your recommendation. recommendation um, what's it called? The Swimmer? The Swimmer. Which I liked a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a John Cheever story called The 548. Mm-hmm. So I listened to that and I thought the story was really good. And I liked the analysis. So I sent it to you. And the lady reading it was She did amazing. a really good job, yeah. She was great. Yeah, she did a really good job. It's a little uh, ASMR-y. Is that, that's the term, right? Where people are like whispering, mm. right? I'm not too familiar with that. I just know it's a thing. Okay. But like people like whisper into the microphone or it's like, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. Okay. I, I'm, I'm going to, I'm just going to. It is very not. like, we're talking very seriously. Right. Uh-huh. That's at least how their analysis is. But it was good. So I sent it to you. Yeah. So what did you think of the story? Yeah, I, I really like the, the the fiction podcast. There's some <clears throat> really good stories that I haven't listened to any of the other ones. I'm I probably listened to the one on the swimmer mm-hmm. when I read the swimmer, but that right. was years ago, so I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. They they there's a few really, really good ones. Um yeah, I I think there's something about John Cheever's style that I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes into the short story that then I want to talk about later on. But it's this kind of style that apparently, I'm not big into the, you know, uh, literature, the critical right. lit scene. But people discount because it's it's... I guess like a workmanlike. It's approach. so straightforward. It's so simple. It's straightforward. Yeah. You know, there, there's not flowery descriptions of everything. Um, but I agree with the analysis that is very well observed. The the details that Cheever puts in his stories show somebody who like knows how to pull out a detail that is compelling right. to to reading or listening. And he has a way of building tension in his stories that that is very quick. Yeah. And I really appreciate that. And I and I do like where he takes his stories, you know. Um in in you know, I've read a little bit of him. Sometimes I think short stories can get lost in somebody's own kind of like you know, I, I they they just kind of get lost in their own navel mm-hmm. gazing, you know? And uh Cheever doesn't do that. Uh in the short stories that I, that I like of his. And so with this one, um, I thought his, I thought the story was fantastic. I thought her interpretation when she was reading it really sold it too. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard for me to parse like what I liked about the language versus what I liked about her reading of it. But I actually listened to it twice. Yeah. Um, because I, I enjoyed it, you know, so much. 
And, uh, you know, I think it, it kind of hits at what I like, which is this, this, ob, this character that's not easy to side with. So he's not afraid to just write a unsympathetic character and a story that kind of falls into almost genre convention. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a thriller story. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also takes time to kind of, you know, look at some deeper themes or some things you can discuss. Right. So, you know, with this guy, you know, you do have this kind of like, again, going back to this idea of power corrupting and a person who, you know, excuses their own behavior in their own mind based on their position. Mm-hmm. He feels like he's earned this position where he is able to you know, mistreat the secretaries that are brought in, into his orbit because mm-hmm. they are lesser. You know, they are there for him, for his whims to do what he's telling them to do. He mistreats this lady, ends up sleeping with her, and then immediately firing her. Right. And because of her handwriting. Right. Well, yeah, yeah you, you do get the sense that he is looking for a reason, but. Well, right. I love the fact that, yeah, he does notice her handwriting. Yeah. Even before he sleeps with her and fires her, like, he realizes there's something in her handwriting that that isn't, that it's speaking to an issue that he's noticing, but not able to put his finger on which later comes out that she spent time in a, in a um, psychiatric ward. Mm-hmm. She had some kind of a breakdown before and was trying to put her life back together again, worked with him, and he just completely dismantled it, mm-hmm. which caused her to you know, stalk him and then pull a gun on him mm-hmm. and confront him. The basic arc of the story. Um, and so, yeah, I, I thought it was... You know, just super compelling. Love the story. But what what do you think? <clears throat> I I liked it. I liked it a lot. Um, like you said, something with uh the now I've only read the swimmer in this of John Cheever, but it's the same thing that I like so much about Paul Auster's writing, which is that it's very straightforward. Mm-hmm. It's very simple. Is kind of the wrong mm-hmm. word. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's hard. It's it, hard to write that way. Right. Exactly. It's, it's, it's like, it's, it's rudimentary, but it's very compelling, right? It makes you want to keep reading. It's not like the thing that I always think about the book that I always think about is super sad, true love story mm-hmm. because I liked the book a lot and I liked what it was about. Mm-hmm. I liked the themes that it explored, but there's, and there's one passage in particular that sticks out to me where he's like describing the Brooklyn bridge where it's just like the last thing I want to read about in this book is you describing in flowery <laughs> five page detail, the, the design of the Brooklyn bridge. I just do not give a shit. Move your story forward. Right. Some people love that. I just, I'm not into it. Um, and so that's what this short story is. It's very like, here are the characters like, you know, and it's like point A, point B, let's get to it. Right. And, but there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. Um, 
the 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 one question I had and the one sort of interpretation I didn't agree with. I I I'm not sure how much of their interpretation I agree with. Uh-huh. I feel I like they they go a little bit too far with some of the stuff they say. Well, well I think I think some of it is they they apply that kind of you know literary criticism idea to a pretty stripped down story, and so they they almost using you know the metaphor they they take the flowery Brooklyn Bridge you know approach right to this story, and so. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I, you know, talking about the sympathy of the characters and stuff like that. Yeah. And- so towards the end of the story, there's the moment where she has confronted him on his train ride home. She gets him off a stop and then tells him to um, lay down on the ground. Mm-hmm. And she has a gun. And she just starts yelling at him, basically. Mm-hmm. And he starts crying. and. Uh, and and to me that was just a, a purely a moment of and maybe this says more about me than the story and the character but to me that was purely just a moment of like this guy thinks he's about to die like I'm not thinking any more into it than that like like this is a person who's not really able to kind of like Donald Trump he's not able to think outside of himself mm-hmm. right like the, really, the only thing that exists in the world is him, mm-hmm. right? And everything else is there for him, basically. Mm-hmm. And so in that moment, when he starts crying, I'm thinking, like, he's doing that because he thinks he's about to die, um, which is, like, the ultimate tragedy for him, right? But then when listening to them talk about it, they're talking about, you know, maybe he's finally realized the error of his his ways right maybe he's finally realized like all the how he's truly hurt this woman uh i just know ne- and i just never got that impression no. and that's uh i think maybe a more cynical take on it but well i i focus on what happens right after that john cheever's like he goes home right <laughs> you know yeah, exactly he's not like wandering the streets looking into yeah. his soul and realizing it's all sham He's going back to the place right. he just where gets up and goes home. Where where he has power because the the brief glimpse that we have of his home life is an argument he gets in with his wife where his wife doesn't make dinner. Right? That's what that she instead just basically gets drunk and sleeps all day. Yeah. Because she's depressed. He comes home, she has not made dinner. And he goes to the calendar and basically marks off two weeks. And he's like, I'm, I will talk to you at the end of these two. Weeks. Right. And she kind of goes into hysterics and is kind of like, and he just refuses to talk to her. Yeah. So it's like, he wants to get back into a place where he has control over somebody. Right. This is just a brief moment where he was not in control. And now he's going to go get it back. But no, I, and, and I think for me, she doesn't shoot him because in that moment, it's about her coming to the realization that how small he is. Mm-hmm. Like that moment was more about her than I think it was about him. Yeah. She is realizing like, I don't need to kill this man. And through it all, she's kind of referencing her illness. She had to go back. Right. And you know, she's like, at first she's saying like, you could be my, all you need to do is like, be my husband you can make me happy or whatever yeah but at the end it turns into uh her anger 
which I think is where she realizes like, no, I'm not giving into my, my delusions. Like <clears throat> this man is small and venal and she sees that. And then for, in the analysis for them to say like, I'm not on her side or, you know, like, and I understand I'm not justifying what she did, mm-hmm. but what she realized I think was still a positive thing. Yeah. She learned it through a negative way. You shouldn't have pulled a gun on this guy. But I think she walks away the better character. Right. And he walks away completely unchanged. Yeah. And I don't think that they shared that view. And I I don't see how. She's at least the sympathetic <laughs> character, right? Like, there's nothing about him whatsoever that's sympathetic. Mm-hmm. He is a dyed-in-the-wool, just, like, asshole, right? The thing that I like the most about the story was how, not just how... um she was written but how she was written when she like starts going crazy because it's not like over the top it's not stereotypical it's very believable and it's very like scary it's scary it's written really well when she um when she starts to lose it that's what makes me uh frustrated if i want to write a story where a character is um, not well. I find that where I go is an obvious place. Of, right. Yeah. Like, I don't, it feels like I'm just aping. What you've seen before. Well, I've seen before. Yeah. Genre, B movie, right. kind of in the shadow. Yeah. Uh, villain. <clears throat> but for Cheever, because it's all in phrases that she right that speak to like you can kind of see her delusion what right. she's saying and it's also perfectly unhinged yeah. from reality and yeah there are phrases I'm I can't believe I can't remember any now but there are phrases that like gave me chills if I imagine right. somebody saying that right. if I was at their mercy and that's what they started saying yeah I'd be like this person is disconnected from reality. I don't know what they're seeing when they look at me. Right. They might not be seeing a human. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. She's like, she's not quoting the Bible, but she's like referencing it. And I yeah. feel like that's probably one thing that would have, if like you just start quoting the Bible, I'll know and be like, okay, this is a little, but she's like referencing it. Right. Yeah. So, so you're as the reader, you're kind of like, oh, she's, she's referencing something now. Right. Um, and that happens a couple of times, but yeah, it was, I thought it was really good. It's great. It's great. I loved it. And, and I feel like that's, that to me is kind of my ideal story. And I keep going back to that with like films too. Like it kind of, you know, I, I get it and I like, you know, pe- people who are willing to take chances. Terrence Malick is a good example. Mm-hmm. The last few films he's made are just aimless. Mm-hmm. They are just navel gazy, beautiful ruminations uh-huh. on whatever he wants. And sometimes it's not clear. Yeah. Um, and I, I have a certain respect for that. Sure. At the same time, I'm like, can somebody pull a gun on somebody? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. Like, can somebody jump in a car and try and get away from somebody else? Right. Like, just like show me something. Right. Give me something. But yeah. And that's, I feel like that's difficult to do without seeming like melodramatic. Yeah. And this is, and it's something that happens in, uh, the 548 that is very believable and it's done very well. 
I read a really not nice review of Song to Song. Oh, yeah, I, there's a lot out there. Yeah, it's not getting good reviews, right? Um, and I think that's probably his first movie that's getting like bad, like universally bad reviews. I, I would say To the Wonder, Knight of Cups, oh, yeah. and Song to Song are all in the... And what, what happens is pure and utter disdain and hatred and song to song gets it more i think because it's coming after two others mm-hmm. and ecstatic love some people still love song oh really we're gone have you seen the other you you've seen um i know you've seen the one did you see to the wonder what is mm-hmm. even that one i don't even know what that one is that's with ben affleck and uh olga kirilenko Allie portman's in it um, and you like those two? I do. See, I do. I I like, and and the reason is is because he's he's working on a trilogy here. I think Tree of Life could be roped in here, but I do see To the Wonder, uh, uh, Knight of Cups, and the positive things I've heard from Song to Song. I see those as as spiritual ruminations mixed with his personal life. Because they're spiritual ruminations, that's why I connect with. Sure. So it's it's almost solely on that because I do identify the personal stuff doesn't doesn't connect with, mm-hmm. and th- and that's largely what people say. It's like, you know, these people don't represent couples. Like mm-hmm. it's not compelling because yeah. no one talks or acts like this in real life. But that's not what Malik is trying to do. You know. Sure. So I I tap into like, you know. Knight of Cups is basically Pilgrim's Progress. Like it's a it's a modernist take on Pilgrim's Progress, mm-hmm. which is why I like it. Um, but if somebody didn't have any interest in Pilgrim's Progress or the themes of that, then they're not going to like that. And mm-hmm. To the Wonder is kind of about ecstatic, you know, religious feeling, as told through ecstatic, you know, sexual desire. Mm-hmm. He's kind of he's kind of putting those things. Sure. So. Thematically, they all work for me. I haven't had a desire to see them again. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't. I just can't watch another movie where Ryan Gosling sings. Does he sing in songs? Yes, I saw it in one of the trailers. Oh. yep. There's can't no wait way. then. Yep, and he's not a good singer. He can't sing. He is a hunky guy who doesn't sound awful when he sings and that's it if he was like cliff howard no one would give a care (laughs) because his singing is bad right (laughs) if he wasn't a good looking guy Uh like people wouldn't be losing their stuff over him singing Uh. i'm not not saying he's their best ever but he works really well in uh la 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 Uh, so the 548 led you to for Esme with love and squalor. Mm-hmm. How so? Well, it didn't really lead me there. I guess <clears throat> I kind of saw this as an opportunity to maybe talk about like a short story that we, that we love. Sure. And so it, it kind of reminded me, it took me, you know, to some short stories that I love in, in styles that. J.D. Salinger definitely represents writing style that I love. Sure. I can't say that John Cheever and his, you know, 
remind me a lot of each other, but my response to the short story is definitely connected in the sense that I find the worlds that they create deeply kind of resonant. Like I, I, I can quickly identify with them and get involved in their stories that, that they're laying out. Sure. But what made me, so I guess on, when I think about short stories, you know, my initial thought actually went to uh, A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor. Mm-hmm. But that's like st- standard. Right. You know, a- everything that could have been said has been said about that right. story and better than I could ever say. But, you know, that I think is an all time. I think one. it's fair to say anything we say on this podcast <laughs> could be said better by Don't someone sell. else. Don't sell ourselves <laughs> short. Uh, and so. Lanny O'Connor, I thought of Stephen King came to mind in sure. terms of short stories that I love. And at first I was, I was quick to dismiss him because I was like, oh, but you know what? Stephen King is an amazing short story sure. writer. He's amazing. Yeah. What was that? Giggle? I can't think of Stephen King short story without thinking about the short story of the guy who was not dead, but he's about to have his autopsy done. Yeah. And then he gets a boner. Right, that's how they <laughs> it's like, right? It's kind of like that's what I think of. Oh, when it's I think great. Of Stephen it's King. Great. He, I mean, and what what uh, the five forty eight made me think of was uh, the man who loved flowers, which sure. is another very kind of stripped down story with a with a kicker like the swimmer has, um, which is something else I that I like yeah. in short stories. Does that even happen? By the way, he gets a boner in that story. I I know exactly which one you're talking about. I don't know that it is, but it wouldn't surprise me. I if that feel is like I'm he, making that yeah. up for some reason. Well, I I know what you and he doesn't get operated. Right, I know that. The, the whole idea yeah. is that he's he's awake for he's not really dead. Right, and they're listening the, to the Rolling Stones. I remember that. Yes, too. and he and they're about to do this autopsy, and they just mm-hmm. keep getting close with the you know tools, and then something happens right. and whatever, and somehow he alerts them. Right. I kind. I kind of think that it's his eyes. I think uh-huh. there's a twitch in his eye, I want to say. But if he gets a boner, that would that would fall directly into Yeah, the and at the same time, like thinking about it, like having all that build up and then a twitchy eye is what alerts them. It's kind of like, yeah, he kind of has to get a boner, I feel like. I think that's the only way he yes. can end that story. Yeah. Right? Which, again, I think is great. <laughs> I think it's great. Yeah, so, it's so, kind of silly. So Stephen King is... I think that's the point. I think Stephen King does have a sense of humor yeah. in his in his short stories. Um, and so th- there's another one where I was like, you know, I'm not going to apologize. Like riding the bullet is an amazing short story. It is, yeah, that's the, a great story. The Langoliers is a great short story. Mm-hmm. Um, the a short story of a man who wants to commit suicide in a bathroom is great. A uh, guy who collects bathroom writings. Like th- there's so many um, vivid characters in the Lawnmower Man. The yeah. Lawnmower Man is one of the most yeah. terrifying short stories I've ever read in That's my life. One. It haunts me. So <clears throat> I thought about him, but I was like, you know, it's Stephen King. Right. Everyone's read him. If you haven't, go out there and pick up any collection of his short stories. They're, they're great. Um, and then that led me to J.D. Salinger because right. all he's pretty much released are mainly short stories and Catcher in the Rye. Right. But I would put his short story collection, nine stories up there as like top five, you know, definitely top five short story collections. I would say just books yeah, uh, ever written. And, you know, 
for me, what, what draws me to J.D. Salinger is the same thing that draws me to Wes Anderson. Because I don't think there'd be Wes Anderson without J.D. Salinger. Absolutely not. Right. And There's I, no way. And I think there are a few things that intrigue me about J.D. Salinger as a person and an author and his stories right. that for Esme really kind of allows us to, to talk about, mm-hmm. which is why I chose it. Um, a Perfect Day for Banana Fish mm-hmm. might be the more interesting just short story right? because of the implications of that story yeah, and the way that he puts across a very disturbed character and makes it seem like a fun story. You know, a fun story. Right. A lighthearted day at the beach. A lighthearted day at the beach. It's yeah. not at all. And right. it's terrifying. And I think some of that is in play in, in For Esme. But, um, but I, I, I think that this story more conveys how I interpret him as a person and a writer. Mm-hmm. Because there's hardly been another more polarizing figure than J.D. Salinger in the public eye. Um, because of reports of how he's treated his wife and daughter right it's possible kind uh, of pedophilia yeah, yeah yeah and some of the other more outrageous claims that have been made against him right and his elusive um nature and uh i, I find him an intriguing character a troubled character sure and i think they comes out in this short story so yes so when was the did you reread it recently yeah Yep. So I reread it for for this podcast. Okay. Um. So I guess really quickly, it's about a GI in World War II who's in London, England, or Germany. Well, so it opens with him getting a wedding invitation. That's right. And uh, he says he can't accept the invitation because of whatever reason. Instead, he's going to include some. Uh, just anecdotes about the bride, mm-hmm. and then you get the anecdotes. And the thing about this story is that, like, it moves in like a David Lynchian way, where it just is like six years have have passed, or I guess have been rewound, basically. Yes, but you don't know it. It just one paragraph ends, the next paragraph begins, and you are six years in the past. Yes. And one of the anecdotes is his meeting of this um, 13-year-old girl and her little brother while he is on, uh, what's it called? Deployment. Deployment, I guess. But It's like right after D-Day, right? Yes. And uh, he hears her singing in choir. They bump into each other. And then uh, fast forward a couple years later, when he's just suffered, he's still in the war, right? Mm-hmm. He's just suffered a nervous breakdown, mm-hmm. and he now discovers this letter from this girl who promised to write him a letter. Yes. And those are basically the two anecdotes. And I think what, what I responded to is the way that J.D. Salinger creates this feeling of nostalgia for me as a reader for an experience that I never had. And for a universe that reflects our own, but is not in certain ways. And I can't pinpoint what those ways are other than to say, you know, I compare it to the universes again, that Wes Anderson created and 
you know, there, Wes Anderson made a movie um, called The Life Aquatic with Steve mm-hmm. Zissou. And in that movie, everybody is operating normally. There's, you know, uh, film equipment, boats. He's an explorer. Everything's as it should be. Right. Except all the animals are stop motion. Right. And that's how the universe is different than our own. Yeah. So it's, it's not our world. And that's, that's the same thing that I get with J.D. Salinger. Is I imagine like in this, in this story, you know, they, they could have stop motion aquatic animals. For, for me, it's the it's the language. I get the exact same feeling. Mm-hmm. It's the way that he writes mm-hmm. that gives me the feeling. Like like with the Wes Anderson movie or with a J.D. Salinger story, this is very clearly the world we live in. Like you can recognize that, but there are small things. There are there are certain words that he chooses to use or way that he chooses to to phrase things that is slightly off. Yes. Uh, and very, very like purposeful and like controlled. And it's something that I really, really like about his writing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like at this point, everyone has read J.D. Salinger. Everyone is kind of like aware of his uh, genius and, you know, to me. And so it's like, the I feel like, and this is not something I realized until I read this short story today because I hadn't read any I hadn't read anything I hadn't read any J D Salinger for a decade probably mm-hmm. since college yeah. But I feel like the way he writes is the way people like try and talk now when they want to sound smart. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when you're getting in an argument with somebody or with someone's trying to make a point and they want to sound smarter than they are, they start talking like they're in a JD Salinger story. <laughs> That's what I feel like. And so I'm the entire time reading them, think just thinking of this like sort of like nebulous, uh, just sort of like antagonizer in my mind who's just being kind of a pompous jerk. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Even though I do really like the way he writes. Yeah. No, I, I love the way he writes. And I think you're right in the language I use this, in the way that Esme really reacts and responds to him. It's not the way a 13-year-old would talk. Yes, and know? that's something I want to talk about too. Right. So, do, do you want to take it from there? Well, the like I said, I haven't read anything by J.D. Salinger since, since college probably. I may have revisited Catcher in the Rye since then. I may have, I feel like I read something else, but I'm not sure. Uh, I probably read. Oh, did, did you read his unpublished? Right. Yeah, I, I, read I read some that. of that when uh, it was released. Good. I didn't read all of it. That was really good. But the way I came about J.D. Salinger is, you know, you go through high school. I was never a big reader, so I skipped all of the books in high school. And then for whatever reason, I decided to read The Catcher in the Rye. And fell in love with it, and then immediately just read everything else he'd done, which up to that point wasn't a lot. It was nine stories and hang Still high, the, the whatever it's called, roof, roof beams. Car- carpenter. <clears throat> and then you start learning about like who J.D. Salinger is, right? Mm-hmm. And then all this stuff comes out, and then it's like, oh, he may have been a pedophile, as evidenced by 
all of a lot of these short stories involving pedophiles, right? And so I'm reading this today, and not even 30 seconds after like this this girl has been introduced, I'm thinking like, wait a minute, I'm positive this is a a a little girl, right? A girl from a children's choir, and yet. I feel like he's describing a grown woman yeah. and I feel like there is some sort of attraction here that's being hinted at yes. that is like very uncomfortable, makes me mm-hmm. very uncomfortable. Um, so I had a ha- really hard time getting past that. I can understand, I-, I get like, I get like the overall mm-hmm. point of the story mm-hmm. and I think it does that very well. Yes. But, you know, it, and it's the same conversation we've had about Woody Allen, about Roman Polanski, about Mel Gibson, mm-hmm. you know, any one of these celebrities, creatives, whatever, who turns out to have a very nasty personal life, right? For whatever reason. And it's like, can you look past that stuff? Can you not? And I feel like, and I'm sure there's inconsist- inconsistencies in my tastes. I mean, ultimately, look, you can poke holes in anybody's character, right? But I feel like I'm at a point in my life where I just can't look past that stuff anymore, right? right? Like I've said before, I just can't what? watch or listen to Louis C.K. anymore. Like, and so this, this thing with J.D. Salinger is like, this really, like... Creeps like, you I, out? It, it, yeah, it, 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 it is big enough that it ends up detracting from the overall uh-huh. effect of the story, right? I'm no, I, can no, I no longer like the language as much as I did before. I can no longer appreciate um, how well he's telling the story of uh, how, you know, a, 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 a soldier's life, right? Because in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking about he's writing <laughs> very, very creepily about a 13-year-old yeah. girl. Uh, and I mean, is it because you're now the father of two girls? I mean, maybe. I mean, that that could very well be it, but I, I don't know. Yeah, it just is. Uh, well, it made me the entire. I was thinking about it the entire time. Yeah. I'm like, and and I went back after it was oh after I was done reading it, I went back to the Wikipedia because I'm like, I know this girl's way younger than yes. how it's being written. Yeah, what he says is in the story, she's like 13. Right, and and then there is something in the in the language of just how he first encounters her that is objectified yeah. like her voice is prettier than everyone else's yeah and her stare is you know disaffected and yeah. you know he's reading all these things into her that make her seem older than she is mm-hmm. that makes you think maybe she's not that way that you're seeing her through his eyes. Yeah. That maybe she was just really a connected 13 year old trying to do good on her part. And this guy seeing like, Ooh, a much older soul in this body. It's just like not really into it. And you know, he's kind of like, he notes that he sees two stifled yawns from her during the song, Mm -hmm. but her mouth was closed. And so it was just like a flare of the nostril. And I found myself like trying to almost act it out while I was reading. I was like, no one does two. Mm-hmm. It, the second one is a full on yawn. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Like you can't like <laughs> just keep it to your nostrils for uh-huh. two. So I was like, he very well could be like, again, reading into that, seeing her take a breath and being like, oh, she's so not into this. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
So I think that there's something like that. And and that's true in a lot of his writing where there's an underlying dread that that hangs about these stories that might be seen as lighter. But he he ingests them and it might just be his own perversity that right. he can't keep out. Right. And I think that that's another thing that makes some some people good writers is that a lot of times, like, you know, like some people speculated that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was autistic or on the spectrum because mm-hmm. of how deep he got into right. his lore, create the languages that he language, created yeah. to like the way that he detailed this world in ways that, you know, he didn't have to. If he was just right. writing a story, it's like, Man, you really did not have to think through the geography <laughs> this this intent in intense. Right. Um, but he did. He he lived in that world and it allowed him to be that detailed and that good of a writer. Yeah. Or some people would talk about writing as a compulsion, right? Um so I think that some of that is in JD Salinger's writing. And maybe one of the reasons why he stopped publishing is because he's like every character is perverted, you yeah. know. You can't keep it out, right. you know. It's getting too obvious. It's getting too obvious. <laughs> you know, it's it's looking like confession right. at this point. Um, <clears throat> and so I think there's something to that. But I, I think what stood out to me too in the in the writing is, and and this is where I think you can armchair, um, become an armchair psychologist on J.G. Salinger and say his characters represent the kind of idealized arrested development male, mm-hmm. you know these kind of adult males who are yearning for a, a connection to children or to childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not unlike Michael Jackson, which again, turns out to be usually pedophile. Right. Um, but what, what I saw in, in the time jump is, you know, this character who is, you know, the, the war to me almost, comes to represent adulthood that he's not equipped to handle adulthood in the way that these other soldiers are he's the one who had a nervous breakdown mm-hmm. and when he's talking to his you know adult male counterpart the adult male counterparts like hey my um <clears throat> fiance is taking a psychology class they talked about you and they said war does not cause a nervous breakdown you must have had an underlying cause yeah and the war you know kind of hit on a, we- a weak spot and that could be this idea that, you know, he's not equipped for adulthood, that that's what the war exposed. And yeah. so he is way more affected by this because, you know, with children, there's always this, um, this level of absurdity that you see him trying to accomplish, right? His, 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 or, or recaptured his adult friend says, gets mad at him. Cause he's like, you can't be serious. Everything they says is like sarcastic and snarky. Mm-hmm. You know, he's basically like, "No, you go out to the uh, to the party. I'm gonna look at my stamp collection." Guys, like, you have a stamp collection? He's like, "No, I don't." You know, yeah. it's like, why would you even say that, right? right? You're just you're just being snarky for no reason. Yeah. But I think that what attracts him to Esme and what attracts him even to her brother Charles uh, is this idea that even as she's trying to act adult, it's it's a parody of it. it she can't get there Mm -hmm. she can't be taken seriously because she's a child and she doesn't know how to operate as an adult so even her attempts at it are you know inherently like attractive cute and you know you can you you can't take her seriously Mm -hmm. 
But with adults, all they want to do is be taken serious. They're going and taking these psychology classes because they want to analyze you. They want answers, and they have answers. I think that he's a guy who is fundamentally, like, tired of those. And all the other adults, if you, you know, realize in letters that are sent, are showing their ignorance. You know, even the, the, uh, the aunt. Or, you know, even his brother, right, who's like, hey, now that D-Day's over, why don't you get some swastika mm-hmm. and some memorabilia? And right. he ends up, like, tearing it up and throwing it away because they're ignorant of the reality, even though they as adults are to be taken very seriously mm-hmm. because, hey, we're, we're adults. But they're also asking ig- ignorant and absurd things um, <clears throat> that don't reflect reality. And I think for him, estimate, even in her attempts to come off as adult, represent more of a reality that he would want to exist in than adult world, mm-hmm. even though he is not. And so it creates this, this tension in him. I think it kind of maybe goes into the psychology of Salinger because he writes amazingly about children, mm-hmm. you know? And it's this idea of like the, the adult world is too serious and too serious about their ignorance for me to abide. I have, I have no time for Mm-hmm. And this character has no time for anybody uh, in his unit, has no time for what they're doing. They're going to a dance. He doesn't want to be a part of it, you know? But he also is so affected by the world that all he wants to do is go, go back right. in his memory. He wants to go back to an encounter with a child, if not back to when he was a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that his interactions with the, with the children also reflect this kind of heightened you know, reality. Did Esme say everything that he wrote? I don't think that she did. I think some of that is, again, through his memory or him reading into her. Sure. Uh, and his projection. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was always what he was engaging with her. I, I think he had that encounter with her. Mm-hmm. But I think some of those details that he, that he picked up on in the story from her posture and affecting his posture uh, might have been more of his you know, kind of delusion mm-hmm. uh, of her. Sure. But then imagine like your, well, I guess her dad's dead in the story, but imagine you're whoever, I guess her husband to be, and you get that note in the mail. And you're kind of like, well, wait, wait a minute. Was this guy attracted to my wife yes. when she was 13? <laughs> and, and that's what I love about it is yeah. there is that darkness, right? There is that darkness. Yeah. And, and he has it in all of his stories that I don't think that it is unintentional. Yeah. I think, I think that's there. For a reason it's like lolita sure. you know where that book is deeply disturbing but nabokov i think knows exactly what he's doing when he writes the details of humbert, humbert yeah but that is also a book about uh a pedophile right absolutely yeah but this but, is not a story about a pedophile yeah but he's but he's saying more with that and 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 to, again for me for, for esme is thematically it's structured in that way that they kind of shows this arrested development, this person who's, who's un, un, uh, he's not comfortable with this place in the adult world. And he sees in children, this purity in, in, in how they approach the world. And even when they try to be, become an adult, it's, it's never serious. Well, enough. And, but I mean, that is like, the J.D. Salinger theme, right? That's yeah. the catcher. That's the theme of the catcher on the right. Like that's the theme of the 
whatever their family is. What's their family called? The glass. The glass. Yeah, the glasses. That's just as like, yeah, that's the thesis. Right. Baby Salinger thesis. And so I, I love, and I love the details. And, it, and that goes back to the Cheever story. How do you know the details to pull out to, to evoke that feeling? And right. normally with this, it, it, was, it was the way that he wrote Charles, the, the, the young boy. The things they has him say and the way he has him act, slumping in his chair. Right. The jokes they tries to tell, the way that he that he tells them mm-hmm. are so descriptive and and reflect such a reality that I could envision. But yet in a way that I wouldn't anticipate any small child to act the way that that, that chart right. did. Um but it's so evocative. It's so good. It it's such a specific vision of the world. Um, that I love and respond to. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I can agree with that. And that's the same appeal to me that Wes Anderson has. It just is, it's, it's not just that it's a unique, uh, vision. It's that it's like cohesive, right? Yes. It's like everything sticks together and it's like, you can follow it from scene to scene or from, mm-hmm. you know, paragraph to paragraph or whatever. And all of his characters have this darkness to them. Yeah. You know, even the Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, Ralph Fiennes has this kind of relationship with older women that make you think like, is he a pariah? Like yeah. using these women, but there's also this, sincere, like th- there's, there's always this, this pull in his movies where you feel like they could all just be like PG, like fun, cute romps. Yeah. But they're all R rated, right. You know, yeah, kind of like darker right. narratives. And I love that. I love that play. I love that tension. And, and he taps into it really well. Salinger is, you know, like we said, is absolutely, you know, uh, honed in on it. And I would say the, the two things in wrapping up, the two books that I would highly recommend for anybody who, who responds to this style of writing, um, you know, I, I've heard other people reference J.D. Salinger going back to uh, um, Tristram Shandy, which is... yeah. Yeah, a book written uh, hundreds of years. Well, I haven't read the book, but I saw the movie. The movie's great. The movie's great. The movie got me to read the book. Right. And the book is great. The book is amazing. Yeah. Um, So I would highly recommend reading Tristram Shandy, and I would highly recommend reading uh, White Noise by Don DeLillo. And I think that's the only other book where I've seen a family captured in such vivid detail Mm -hmm. that didn't feel like a family in the real world. It felt like a heightened family, but all the, all the emotions rang true. And I found that book like heartbreaking and hysterical and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, definitely like JD Salinger esque. Mm-hmm. I don't remember getting that into white noise. It's amazing. Uh, so the story I recommended was, or is called the story of your life, which is the short story that arrival was based off of. And I recommended it uh, partly because I knew I wasn't going to read anything, new. but you read for S me. Well, yeah. Well, well, because I wanted to read that. Um, but I knew I wasn't going to have time to like in between yesterday and today to find a short story. I was interested enough to read and, and read through and, and talk about it. Um, but I recommend that because I had just read it recently or at least whenever I, I read it like 
a, the week after I saw Arrival, just because I figured it would make a good short story for me to get sort of trying to like kickstart my reading time again. Yeah. Um, but I also recommended it because it changes the one thing that I really didn't like about the movie, and I think it changes it for the better. And uh, and other than that, it's pretty much like. I feel like it could serve as the screenplay for the movie, Mm -hmm. right? Like the movie follows it to a T outside of this, uh, outside of what ends up being in the movie, a huge moment or maybe not a huge moment, but like it's treated as like the climax of the movie. Whereas in the book, it's kind of like uh, it's more uh, it's treated more as like they treat the the written language of the aliens, right? Where it's kind of like it's just a piece of this sentence, um, and it's not really given any more emphasis than anything else is. I feel like, um, and that is the the uh, the the daughter's death, right? Mm-hmm. So in the movie, um. What's her name? Amy Adams. Adams, yeah. In the movie, the daughter only lives to like ten. Uh, uh-uh. uh, no, she 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 makes it pretty much the same age. No, she doesn't. Yeah, no, she in does. the movie, she dies of cancer as a kid, right? Not as a kid, she dies of cancer as an older, older. I'm going to look it up because girl. I thought in the movie. He died as a kid, as a kid, and that bothers me. Yeah, no, it, um, like a like a teenager. Yeah, you 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 talk. I'll I'll uh, right, but no, if you, I mean, your your memory is is pretty shot. But uh, <clears throat> there's that scene when she's first diagnosed. She's like sixteen, and then. Um, when she dies, you know, her head is shaved. She, she's probably close to 90, I would say. Upper teenage. She's older in the, the short story. I will, I will. Oh, you know what we need to do? We just need to uh, pull up a picture of the daughter. Nice little image search. And you can look at the uh, IMDb how old she is. Telling you, it's a little girl. Uh, so there's okay. Oh, they they actually broke them out by ages. There is eight-year-old Hannah, six-year-old Hannah, and twelve. Twelve-year-old. Twelve Hannah. is as old as she gets. Uh-uh. There's I'm, gonna be one more. No, there's not. I'm telling you. Be full cast. Yeah, I'm still. Scrolling. 8, 12, 6. What, look, why would they do 8, 12, 6 and then have 50 other names and then do like 16-year-old Hannah? Because then she's literally just on her deathbed. So carry Hannah. on. Hannah, four years old. That's it. I'm telling you. So she was 12 years old. Go on. So that makes a big difference to me. Okay, I, so in, in the short story, she's like in her 20s somethings, right? Like mid-20s. 
she has a car accident, right? And pretty much dies on the spot. Was there a part in the book, in the short story, where she's trying to get to the scene of the accident? But by uh, the time she gets there, she's In, in the short story, dead? she she dies by falling off of a cliff. Oh, that's right. Because yeah. she's rock she's climbing? Not, yeah, she, she's that's rock right. climbing. That's right. Uh, so she dies instantly, basically. And I know these are kind of morbid details to get into. But in the movie, she dies. Uh, and like I said, in the short story, she dies by falling off the cliff. She's in like her mid-20s. You could argue that she's lived a full-ish life. Right. She's like 26, I think they say. In yeah. The yeah. But like I was saying, she's lived a full-ish life. She dies more or less instantly. Um, but also in the book, like I said, it's treated as if you've read the short story or if you've seen the movie, like the the whole thing, the entire movie or the entire story is centered around this idea that these heptopods, they don't know the future per se, but they see everything at once, right? Uh, and their written language reflects that. So when they give you one of these symbols, symbols, it is it's giving you everything at once. You don't read it in a left to right fashion, right to left fashion. You just see the symbol and you get everything at once, right? And so in the story, that event is kind of treated that way. In the movie, it's 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 treated. To me, it's treated completely differently, and it's and it's it's treated as like this revelation of like uh, how you should live your life. Not only that, I, not only do I disagree with the like philosophy they apply to it, I disagree with just the uh, the minute log- logistics of the whole thing. Where it's like, I feel like if I knew. That I had a kid, right? And I knew that that kid at 12 years old was going to die from cancer. I would not have that kid because that is a terrible thing for a 12-year-old to go through. And I feel like that decision is different if I know that it is a 26-year-old who dies instantaneously, right? Because, and like I said, I know this is a little morbid, but like, Dying from cancer over the course of a year is really, really different than falling off a cliff and dying instantly. And I'm not going to force that on a 12-year-old. Yeah, I, I really want to get into the, in, into the short story because I, I read it too in preparation. I have some, some real thoughts about what they did change. They, they, they changed a lot more surprisingly. Like the, the, the story basically has no action. And yeah, no tension. Sure. No, none of the military. It's more or less just the procedural part of the movie. Oh, the, yeah, it's yeah, exactly. And what they changed with the ending, but just debating this ending with you a little bit. Uh-huh. And <clears throat> I think that your take is completely valid. Sure. Especially because you're bringing with, with it, you know, like, like everybody does your own experience, yeah. your own thoughts about, you know, cancer and illness and, and, and all that stuff. So that, that is absolutely valid. But I think that what the 
movie, and you could disagree with this, is trying to say is that the, the ability to live, however brief, is worth the death that we potentially enter into, you know, or, or no, that, that is worth the suffering of the children that we're going to bring into the world. Right. So I don't know how Indy is going to die. Mm-hmm. I pray to God that it is after me, number one. Sure. And that it is at a old age. Right. And that it is from natural causes. That's my that's my hope. The fact that I still that I brought a child into the world not knowing that that is, I have opened him up to a, a a way different and horrific possibility. Sure. Whether I know that or not, I am kind of saying, "Hey, son, I don't know if you're going to be alive for a year. I don't know if you're going to be alive for days. I don't know if you're going to be alive for twelve years, sixteen, twenty-six, or beyond." But however long you're on this earth, it's going to be worth whatever death you might have. If I didn't believe that, then I wouldn't have children. You know what I mean? That, that is something that I understand that we don't, we, we're not, we probably weren't aware enough when we had our children to ask that question. Sure. Yeah. But that is fundamentally the, the, the question that whether we asked or not, we answered by having a kid. It's like, it's worth it. It's worth it. For you to experience this life. Um, and so regardless of how you feel, like we answered that question. I think what Rival is trying to say is we answered it correctly. Like, you know, for Luis mm-hmm. and Yam's character, like those 12 years, you know, 14, whatever, was, was worth that ending. I don't think that we can hold that against her because we all have said the same thing by having our own. Sure. I just don't know if I would have made the same decision. I don't know if I want to argue whether or not it's worth it. (laughs) Uh, But, but Jeremy Renner's character agrees with you. Sure. Which is true. Which is interesting that he put that in. Like, and again, the, the short story is, is darker than the movie. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't even address why they broke up, but it's hinted and the movie makes it makes it plain right and i i thought that that was a very interesting choice that it's not you know in this story too she's a hard girl to love you know yeah she's all in every flashback there's usually a reference to at least her like yelling at her mom yeah or being upset at her mom or her mom having a difficult time with her or mom or her bragging to her mom how drunk she got when Went yeah. to a party, and you're like, man, he is not picking like sweet stories. Yeah, you know. And I thought that, that was that was interesting. That's also in the movie too, a little bit though, isn't she? Kind of a pain in the ass in the movie. Um, I mean, they, they she she has scenes like in the movie. Right, she has she moments where yells she's like, like, "I hate you." Yeah. But you know, even that scene that's word for word in the movie where she asks her mom for the non-zero sum game mm-hmm. um, anecdote in the movie. She's like in a good mood. Like she's like, mom, what is this? Oh, you don't know. Okay. 
in the book, like she asked her mom, mom's like, I don't know. And yeah. she's like, you never help me with my homework. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. She's immediately screaming at her again. Right. And you're like, good God. She like doesn't yeah. let up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when her mom pulls it, she's like, oh, thanks. Mom gives her a, a kiss. And you're like, and then again, it kind of goes on to this idea that at the time of her death, you get the sense that Luis and her haven't really talked that much. Right. You know, just kind of like. I think my, my biggest problem with the change in the daughter's death in the movie is just how it's, it, it's, it's how it's handled, right? And again, it's, maybe it is personal experience, but y- you spend however long the movie is, an hour and f- two hours, an hour and 45 minutes you spend of this movie in, in a very toned down uh, very what at least tries to be realistic, like tackling of how would we, um, handle uh an alien race coming to the planet and communicating with us? Like it's like a procedural, right? Mm-hmm. Where the procedure doesn't exist yet, and then you get this. This it's just is a very like flowery. Well, it's almost like uh. Like, uh, is it called the fountain? Oh, yeah. When his wife dies in the fountain. And it's just as like, I don't know. It's just as like a sunny, well-lit hospital room. And it's just as like the person just fades away. And it just is <laughs> like, I don't know. It just felt yeah. like. Phony. Yeah. It just felt like phony, yeah. especially for a very dark movie yeah. that just spent two hours Try, you know, getting into like the nitty gritty of trying to figure out an alien language, yeah. like at least a realistic approach to that. And then it felt like it took this one thing and treated it very unrealistically. Yeah, I think I think the movie simplified things in a way that I, you know, I'm trying not to hold hold anything against it, but man, that book is basically about free will mm-hmm. and addressing this idea of fatalism or if you want to get religious of you know predestination right. in a way that is interesting compelling and difficult where you know, he's trying to basically make the case that knowing the future knowing the outcome uh of something should not and trying to make the case that you you he could understand why somebody would not change anything well, and that's the thing too. There is no way. I know. I'm telling you, it, it is an impossibility for you to know what's going to happen next in every single moment of your life and to not change something. But just knowing it changes something. Yeah, but right. I, yeah, but I think that he has a noble approach, and and what I kind of took him as attempting to do is saying, don't look at it through Luis's eyes, because really. What is, and this is my reading, so I have no idea if this is not in the text, Mm -hmm. but a opaque visitor uh, from outer space comes down to earth. Mm -hmm. Could it be God? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, this could be a stand-in for for a God that is all-knowing. And what is the primary question that we ask? As humans, you know, why? Mm-hmm. Why is there suffering? Why are you allowing bad things to happen? You're all powerful. Why don't you come and change something, you know, mm-hmm. that's bad? Uh, you know, 
put food in a starving child's belly. Right. You know, don't let Hitler come. Like I, I saw a meme the other day. Um, yeah, that, that was talking about like how Hitler fits in cre- into creation. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like how did, how did that happen? Right. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and, and so there's something to that, but what, what this story is trying to say is don't just look at it from a human perspective because what Luis has grasped is something that's bigger than her. Mm-hmm. And he makes that clear in the short story that she never gets to achieve the full consciousness of these aliens. Mm-hmm. She never fully gets to see the universe in the way that they see. She only has a glimpse, but that glimpse is enough for her to finally see this fatalistic, you know, predestined future as something that she is not able or compelled to change, you know, that she has achieved this higher consciousness. I think, again, the, the, the approach is, is, is laudable because he's trying to address that in a way that, that I haven't seen before. It's very uh, ambitious. Mm-hmm. And whether you agree or not with what, where he comes out at the end of it, but he's basically saying that there is a possibility where you see the working out of the future as right. The only right way they could be because mm-hmm. this is the way that things have been written. And, and they kind of address that with like light, right? Like light is taking either the most maximum length of time to get right. somewhere or the most minimum. It is one or the other. It is the extreme, right? And that means that there is some intentionality on the part of what? Of the light of, you know? And again, it's speaking to this higher consciousness, this unifying idea, God, whatever you want to say it is. And so I found that to be compelling, you know? And he's trying to say, like, listen, if you believe in a, in a fatalistic world of a God who sees the, the future, you can still reconcile that with like, this is orderly. This is the way it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's not supposed to be any other way, even in the bad stuff, right? Because there's, a, there's an intention. And as a religious person, I obviously maybe respond more to that mm-hmm. idea and, and am intrigued by it than somebody who, yeah, would say like, oh, listen, there's nothing in this world but the suffering that you experience or the or the joy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if someone's going to experience suffering, there's no meaning greater than that suffering. So mm-hmm. why would you be? Okay. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, and I like how he teased out those ideas in a, in, a, in a very short story. Yeah. Where, again, he doesn't come out and say any of this, but it's all through, you know, the light. It's all through physics. Mm-hmm. It's, it's through this uh, experience of the character and jumping in and out of time and getting a hint of something bigger and trying to understand that. That, uh, I really, I really responded to, and I find the story far more dark and compelling than the film. Yeah, I don't know that the film could address it the way that the story does. I don't know that you could hit 
her understanding of of time mm-hmm. and of everything happening at once. Yeah, the book definitely has, I think, probably an easier time doing that just because of the medium. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally, which is why I think I almost feel like they had to make the change. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, of course, the book is going to be bastard. But I thought they did a well, a good job of it in the movie. So do I. Oh, yeah, I've seen the movie multiple times. I I love it. I love that movie. But I love that short story, too. Mm -hmm. And I think that short story is is richer to go back in. Uh, are you going to watch the uh, Dave Chappelle specials tonight? Have you already watched? I, I have not because I'm I'm waiting for Elise. You know that she'd want to watch it, uh-huh. but uh, I hope so. I hope that she's she's up to at least one because he released two. Yeah. Have you seen any? No, we're gonna watch at least one tonight. Yeah, maybe two. I guess it depends on how long they are. I've heard some things. I haven't heard anything. Mm-hmm. I just watched the one trailer. Some some people are apparently upset. Oh really? Yeah. Well, people are always upset. Mm-hmm.